If you'll open your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Focus your attention on verse 10 to begin with. Ephesians chapter 6. The title for today's message is Power and Provision for Spiritual Battle. When we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we changed spiritual sides. In our before days, before Christ days, in our unregenerate days, before we had a relationship with God through faith in Christ, we were allies and followers of Satan. We were captive to him, by him, and we did his will. But now, we are his enemies. And our enemy directs his ire at us. Satan and his fellow fallen angels hate God, hate Christ, hate Christ's church, the body of Christ. That would be you and me. And this hatred is in part the impetus for their relentless opposition to God, to Christ, and to his church. Do understand, they cannot rob us of our salvation. As powerful as they are, these supernatural beings, Satan and his minions, our salvation is eternally secured by the invincible power of God the Father and God the Son. What he attempts to do, what cohorts do, is this. They seek to draw us into sin and disobedience. They want to weaken us spiritually. They want to mar our testimony before a watching world. They want to dishonor Christ, our head, by our failures. These are some of the things that they attempt to do. So the battle is on. The war is engaged. But Christians are not at the mercy of these powerful, evil, supernatural beings. I'm glad to report that. For Christ has provided for us so that we are not defenseless. And that we may stand against their assaults. Our Lord has provided us with his own power. Our first point then would, is this. Strength from Christ. Strength from Christ. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Without Christ's strength, the battlefield is unequal. The powers of evil would have a decided advantage. But Christ, do understand, this does not make us equal on the battlefield. He does better than that. Rather, his power, his strength, tilts the field in our favor. He gives us the advantage. Hence, Paul writes here, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
This is a recognition that without Christ's strength, without his power, we are at the mercy of the devil. In fact, when Paul says, finally, this is his final exhortation. In chapters 4, 5, and in the earlier part of chapter 6, the apostle is teaching us how to walk or to behave as Christians. Here, with the word finally, he inaugurates a new aspect of instruction. He is teaching us how to stand. How to stand firm in warfare. In fact, that the word stand firm, we'll see it three times in this passage. It's a key exhortation. God, through the pen of Paul, wants us to stand. He does not want us to fall back, give up ground. He wants us to stand firm. And we're able, in fact, to stand firm when we're strong in the Lord. Now, our Lord's power is complete over the forces of Satan. The devil and demons cannot overcome Christ and his power. In fact, Christ's complete power and authority over demons and over the devil were showcased during his earthly ministry. His power is unquestioned. I want you to get that. His power and authority is unquestioned over them. You'll recall as you read the Gospels, Jesus just had to utter a word. He said, come out. And the demon, and in some cases demons, had to exit the demonized individual. He has utter power over them. In fact, they could not resist him. In fact, they know who he is. Remember in Colossians chapter 1, earlier in this service, I read you from Colossians 1, and I showed you that all things were created through him, including dominions and thrones, the invisible and the visible. The invisible are the demonic forces as well as the holy angels. Satan knows that Jesus Christ created him. The demons know that Jesus Christ created them. Now, he didn't create Satan as Satan. Satan became Satan because Satan wanted to be in opposition to God. The demons followed him, a third of them. A myriad of demons followed him. But they all know, without a question, who's in charge. So with a word, Jesus in his earthly ministry said, come out. The demons know his absolute authority over them. In Luke chapter 8, verses 28 and 30, you may recall uh, there were some demons in a man. There, was a, there were a bunch of them. In fact, there's so many of them, they called themselves legion. And they saw Jesus come. They knew who he was. They said, here's the creator. Here's the son of God. Here's the son of the most high. And they came. He came and they begged Jesus, do not send us to the abyss. The abyss is the bottomless pit, a place in hell where they know they are sentenced to go. And they beg Jesus, don't send us there. We know you have the power and authority to dismiss us from the planet to the bottomless pit. Don't send us there. Uh, Jesus, would you send us into the swine? 
He said, we'd rather be sent into the pigs rather than you dismiss us to eternal punishment because we know you can do it. So is the power of Christ. That's why we're to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In fact, Jesus now is not on earth. You know that. He's exalted. (laughs) Boy, he's exalted the highest place. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, but verse 20, he's raised from the dead. And he seated him, the Father did, at his right hand in heavenly places. Now notice verse 21. It says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. He is far above. That's spatial language. But the spatial language is used to demonstrate the vast superiority of Christ over all the fallen angels and over all invisible powers in this life and in the life to come. Moreover, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. They're subject to him. God the Father has put everything under the feet of Christ. Christ is the conqueror. He has utter dominion. And they're under his feet. And you will see, notice in verse 22, and gave him his head over all things to the church. What this is telling us, the Father has given Christ authority over everything for our sake. He has given him authority over the demonic host for our sake, the church. He is over the demonic world for our sake. That's why the text, when Paul gets here in Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now you know the kind of power he has. To be strong in him. Christ is our shepherd, is he not? We are his sheep. And as the good shepherd, he protects his sheep. He is not leaving us vulnerable to those that would hurt us and destroy us and harm us. No, 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 no. He has provided for us. Not only has he saved us, not only has he delivered us from the domain of darkness, but he also protects us from the domain of darkness. He is the good shepherd. And so we come here, we understand he has provided for us. That's why Paul says in the text, be strong in the Lord. Now we need to explain this. Be strong in the Lord? Yes. The Greek grammar is such that we could put it like this. We are commanded to be continually, uh, to continually allow ourselves to be strengthened from the Lord Jesus Christ. We are commanded to allow ourselves to be continually strengthened by Jesus Christ. We are to obey him. We are to submit to him. We are to be strengthened by him on a continual basis. 
there's to be no time in our life where we're not being strengthened by the Lord. Verse 10, and in the strength of his might. What kind of strength is this? It's the strength of his might. Strength renders the Greek kratos, which has reference to supernatural power in the sense of might, dominion, and mastery. Christ's supernatural strength means that he exercises dominion and mastery over all his opponents. His opponents really cannot do anything against him successfully because he is absolutely utter authority and mastery and dominion over them. The word might here denotes inherent supernatural power inherent supernatural power we're all familiar with Samson Samson was a strong man he had superhuman strength but it was not inherent it came to him from the Lord when the Lord withheld it from him as he sadly found out when his locks were cut by Delilah he was like any other man Jesus' might is not like Samson's might his might doesn't come from outside himself and it cannot be removed from him his power his supernatural power is inherent It is essential to who he is. It is permanent. He has a supernatural power because he is God. He is inherently powerful. He is inherently omnipotent. And it is eternal. And this is the strength. Now get this. This is the strength by which we are made strong so that we can stand firm against the devil and his cohorts. We have the supernatural strength of Christ available to us. No Christian can say, I'm just staying strong enough. No, you're not in yourself. But there is power available. Flip Wilson didn't know what he was talking about. Remember when he said, the devil made me do it? Well, he didn't know the Lord. May May I go on a little bit? The devil can't make you do anything you don't let him do. Because we have the supernatural strength of Christ available to us 24-7. Therefore, we can stand. We can stand like human bulwarks against Satan and all his schemes and devices. We can stand and not falter, fail, or give any ground. We have strength from Christ. Now, the next point, provision from God. These are related. Verse 11 How do we become strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? Here it is. Put on the full armor of God. That's how you do it. That's how you avail yourself of the strength of Christ. You put on the full armor of God. The two words put on are imperative. A command in the original text. Command. God commands it. The Centers for Disease Control. The CDC. I noticed the other day, they make recommendations. 
but they cannot command the American public to do the things they recommend. It's just a recommendation. They're, no one's obligated to listen to them. They can just take their wise counsel, their scientific knowledge, and say, okay, I, I think I'll do it or maybe I won't. Here's the deal. God doesn't offer us recommendations. God gives orders. He orders us to put on the whole armor of Christ. God has never been in the business of making suggestions to his people. He is always in the business of giving commands, directives, mandates. He says, this is what you do. And what we do, we obey him. We obey him. And when we're fully outfitted with the whole armor of God, uh, we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Otherwise, we're vulnerable, we're weak, and we're subject to sin of all manner. And now we need, we need to have this armor on all the time. It's to be our constant dress. You're never not to have on the whole armor of God. A Puritan pastor, William Kernal, in a commentary on this text, said this. In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but robes of glory. But here the armor is to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in it, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. In this armor we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance, for the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture to creep on a sleeping lion. End of quote. You don't have any time to be sleeping in war. You got to keep the armor on all the time. We put on the full armor of God and we keep it on. It's to be with us throughout our entire life. Why? Verse 11. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That is, hold our ground. Not get pushed around spiritually. That is, to offer resistance to uh, the devil's schemes. The devil's schemes. There in verse 11. Schemes, his tactics. Our word methods come from the Greek word rendered schemes in the New American Standard Bible. The devil is crafty. He is deceptive. He lies. In fact, um, that's all he ever does. Jesus said he is the father of lies in John eight forty four. Jesus, Jesus said he's a liar and, and Satan who's a liar, his native language is lying. I used to work with guys who talk about the character of someone who was untrustworthy, and they said, was he telling, is he lying or telling the truth? And they thought he was lying to say his mouth was moving. In other words, anytime he talked, he lied. Satan's a liar. His deception is his modus operandi. According to 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. We know what they are because they're found in Scripture. During World War II, 
General George Patton of the United States was engaged in battle in North Africa against the German General Erwin Rommel. The story goes that during the thick of the battle, Patton yelled at uh, Rommel. He said, I have read your book, Rommel. He repeated, I have read your book. In fact, in Rommel's book, Infantry Attacks, he had carefully detailed his military strategy, and Patton, having read it and knowing what to expect, planned his moves accordingly. He knew what Rommel was going to do. Patton had an advantage in North Africa in the tank battles because he knew what the German general was up to because he disclosed it. In a greater way, God has revealed in his book, Satan's Schemes. He has shown us his warfare strategies. And we who have read his book, the Bible, are prepared for spiritual battle because we know what to expect from our enemy, the devil. We know what's coming. To use another illustration, I guess, I would love, well, some people do that, I've heard. Can you imagine if you're on a football team and you had their playbook? Or the, well, no, if you had their game plan. You knew what they were planning to do. The first 15 plays on offense, you knew what they were going to do. If you're on defense, boy, you love that, wouldn't you? You know what to expect. Well, we know what to expect. Because we got the Bible. We're therefore not ignorant of his schemes, his tactics. Let me give you some of those schemes that are found right here in the scripture. One of them is creating doubt in the believer's mind about the word of God is truthfulness. Truthfulness. In Genesis chapter 3, one of the oldest tactics that Satan has is nearly as old as the human race itself. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, speaking through the serpent, Satan said to Eve, you surely will not die. The doubt is introduced by calling God a liar. He planted in Eve's mind that God's word could not be trusted. Yeah, he told you if you eat of the fruit, you'll die. Don't you believe that? So you can go ahead and act in defiance, Eve. God's word can't be trusted. So it is today. The devil wants to implant doubt in the believer's mind about the truthfulness of God's word. He wants you to think, uh, I'm not so sure this is true. God says that's not right, that's not good, that's not helpful, that won't bless me. I'm not so sure about that. And when you disobey, you experience the consequences. Another scheme of the devil is anger. Anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. It says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. When there is anger, you can have, be angry righteously, but when you don't deal with anger rightly, you devolve into sin. And when that anger has come and you haven't dealt with it righteously, guess what? The devil says, that's what I wanted you to do. Be angry. And he moves in and creates havoc in relationships and in churches. 
Another scheme of the devil is in marriage. I'm going to tell you something. Marriage is fair game for the devil. He couldn't care less about you having a happy home. If he can blow, blow it up, mess it up, he'll do it. Paul warned the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, because sometimes married couples would not come together in, uh, conjugally for time away for prayer. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan sees people in that situation. Oh, you're not together conjugally. Let me tempt you. Another thing, another scheme that our arch enemy brings is false teaching. Satan in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen disguises himself as an angel of light. False teaching divides and confuses believers. It can neither save sinners nor sanctify believers. One of the things that Satan has done remarkably well in, in this country has been the prosperity gospel. You know those guys on TV that tell you that God wants you rich. They tell you that the gospel means that Christ wants you rich and he wants you healthy. That prosperity gospel is a lie and it has harmed the church in America. I've known people personally that have been so messed up by, by that, is messed up their lives, messed up their marriage because they bought into that lie. It panders to greed. And there are guys on TV with big, big churches who tells you that God wants you to be rich. I mean, people lap it up. Of course, they're all rich because people have been giving their money to them. And they can give Bentleys to their fellows, preachers. It's a lie. And Satan has introduced that into the American church. Another scheme is to stoke animosity among believers when they fail to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. Unforgiveness can destroy church unity. There is a man who had sinned against the Apostle Paul in Corinth, and in fact, into his face when Paul was there, and the church was failing to forgive the man after his repentance. And Paul said, no, forgive him. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us we're not ignorant of his scheme. And one of the schemes of the devil is when people do not forgive, it fractures relationships, it fractures a church. You have to forgive. I, I tell people sometimes that uh, you haven't been sinned against to the degree that we've sinned against God. When you think about how someone sinned against you, think about this, how you sinned against a holy God. And he forgives you. Would you then move around talking about, I ain't forgiving them. You don't know what they did to me. <laughs> you don't know what you've done to a holy God. You sinned against him and he could have, the first sin, sent you straight to where you needed to go. Hell. What did he do? He let you breathe. Keeps you living. 
forgives you, saved you. Amen. Amen. Go on, tell the truth. Shame the devil. (laughs) Sometimes I'm amazed at us. How we're so readily asking, God, forgive me of my sins. I ain't forgiving them for that. You know what they did to me? That's hypocrisy. It's not Christ-likeness. Let me move on. Yeah, you're right. It's the truth. So, a lady in the church that I attended years ago, she said, it's just the truth anyhow. <laughs> Those are the schemes of the devil. And that's how he works in the life of people. And that's how he undermines the church. That's how he undermines people's lives. That's how you end up defeated and not an effective believer. Verse 12, the apostle continues telling us why we must put on the full armor of God in order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He's told us this, but now he advances his argument in verse 12 by telling us we put on the full armor of God because of the nature of our struggle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness and the heavenly places. That word struggle indicates hand-to-hand combat up close. It's like wrestling, and, and wrestling in that day, involved, even in that day, involved trickery and deceit. The struggle is not against human beings. It's against these supernatural beings here that Paul lists in verse 12. That's the nature of our struggle. It's what you're up against. And you see the word against, 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 repeated in verse 12 before each of the category of demons. And this suggests there's a hierarchy of them. Satan has organized the demonic forces in a hierarchical manner, mimicking God, who has the angels in a hierarchy, like Michael's up at the top, and there it is, descendant uh, angels, and power and authority. And you'll notice in verse 12, it says, after the word blood, but against the rulers. These are demons who have primacy and power. They are leaders and rulers. The next category here in this text is against the powers. The word powers denotes freedom to act. They have authority. Plural. The plural is here indicating there are a number of these kinds of fallen angels. The third Category in verse 12, against the world forces of this darkness, plural there as well, world forces. There are many of these demons. The word darkness refers to the realm and power of sin. In stark contrast to them is God who is light, 1 John 1, 5, and who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy chapter 6. God who is absolutely holy, and here these demons are utterly unholy these fallen angels dwell in darkness are in conflict with God who is light who is holy I'm going to tell you these fallen angels um, they infiltrate and influence governments and nations against God and Christ in this gospel, I was reading yesterday a report in some areas in our world 
that are um, and there's a ministry that operates there but they do not disclose it for security reasons there are christians i want you to get this there are christians who are under the assault of this kind of thing christians right now who wake up every day to a nightmare they don't know if this is their last day on earth because of their faith what will happen sometimes their houses are broken into there there are tribes that'll take them and burn them and brutalize them there are churches that are under surveillance by the government while they're worshiping like us being here and if the if we had a hostile government to us would be observing what we do what we say so they could punish us there are christians being persecuted around the world in these places where demonic power is having a field day Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 and Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 talks about the the darkness. By the way, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the privilege to come and worship here without real interference is a blessing beyond your imagination. You don't have to worry about getting up in the morning if somebody drag your family out off somewhere and you'll never see them again because of your faith in Christ. When I was reading this report, it's true, these people are for real, it's not a joke. Uh, I wanted to weep for our fellow brothers and sisters who are enduring horrific things, but they're standing firm for Christ. In fact, uh, this, this thing with these demonic forces in the Middle East, Islam is dominant. Even moving toward Europe, Europe only has 1% to 6% evangelical Christians. The place where the Reformation began is pagan. It's been that way for a while. I'm going to tell you something, though. I'm not discouraged for the simple reason God's going to save his people. He's going to deliver his people. He's always done it. He'll do it again. So that's what we're up against. That's what the church is up against against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. Wickedness, uh, this next category, wickedness. These spiritual beings, uh, their characters are essentially wicked. These demons work to facilitate greater wickedness in the world. Now, you say, well, what you told us about a moment ago is overseas. It doesn't bother me too much. What about in our own country? Let me tell you what's going on. I'm old enough to remember when heterosexual immorality was frowned upon. I'm old enough to remember when people didn't come out of the closet. They stayed in. And if they were exposed, they said, oh, I'm not gay. Now, what do they do? They celebrate it. We just ended the month of June. And it's celebrated by in national life. Uh, it's Pride Month and Pride that which should cause shame is now celebrated as something to be proud of. Wickedness is on the increase in our nation. If you don't see that, you have been asleep. And it has crept into churches. The United Methodist Church, somebody says, oh, why are you talking about uh, other churches? Because I have to tell the truth. United Methodists you want to ordain gays for the ministry and have same-sex marriages performed? Are you kidding me? 
God condemns that. And there are people calling themselves Christians. Tell you they're not Christians. And it's coming into the church in America. The national life. Oh, let me add another. Transgenderism. If you were born biologically a male, that's what you are. Yeah, I understand intersex stuff. I understand there are some anomalies, but that's a small percentage. Most people, you are what you were. What you are is what you were at birth. All of this is part of Satan's agenda. He is out to destroy lives and destroy people. And he wants to corrupt the church. That's what we're fighting against. We have to stand, the church has to stand against a cultural flow that is going opposite to us. Now, somebody's going to accuse me of, of hate speech, sure enough. <laughs> because I say, those things are wrong. Because God says they're wrong. It's not left up to me to declare it, or determine that it's wrong, rather. God has already declared it. The enemies of Christ want to buy want us to buy into moral perversion, compromising God's truth. It's a war. It's a war. And I suspect that unless God intervenes with a profound revival, the course of our nation is going to continue downward. Downward. Keep living. Because who would have thought? I wouldn't have thought. Seven, ten years ago that I see the things I see now. And there's nobody to put the brakes on. Trust me. And we're living in a world like now. You say, has that happened before? Let me tell you, yes, it has. Not only the, the culture at large, but also in the church. And why we have to be very diligent in being faithful to have on the whole armor, hold to divine truth. Um, go with me to Revelation. Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 2. This won't be long, but I just need to share this with you. You don't mind, do you? Okay, I'm glad. I should keep us here because we were gone for 15 months. <laughs> so why don't we just stay here for a while? What do y'all think about that? Amen. I love it when the brothers say amen. Yeah. <laughs> they say, well, we don't have to cook. Some of them say, well, you know. <laughs> All right, Revelation 2. In the first century, 2,000 years ago, do understand that these kind of things happened before. Jesus, um, in Revelation 2 and 3, writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Asia Minor in western Turkey today. Here's a word for these churches. It's condemnation for some and no condemnation for others. But one in particular, I, I want to um, focus here on Thyatira. Revelation 2. And so to the angel of the church of Thyatira, the angel there is the pastor. It's not a supernatural angel. It's not the point here. Angel, angelos in Greek means messenger. The messenger, pastor of the church. 
The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service, perseverance, and that your deeds are later greater than first. But I have this against you. In Revelation 2.20, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. That's a symbolic name for a woman who's a false teacher. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In this church, there was a woman who professed to be a prophetess. She was not a prophetess of God. She was a servant of Satan, and she's teaching people to commit immorality. Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to, to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Let me explain something briefly. The deep things of Satan. What Jezebel, this prophetess, this emissary of Satan, was teaching, and what they call it the deep things of Satan. Get that, Satan? She's teaching the deep things of Satan in the church. Those deep things of Satan refer to this, that people are free to in participate or indulge in evil with their body without harming their spirit. In other words, you can commit any old sin you want to, any immorality you want to, and immorality here that Barnez, the word in the original, so it includes heterosexual immorality, homosexual immorality, any of that, you can do it and it doesn't bother your spirit, which is a lie. And if you read this, these letters to the seven churches, you'll see where Satan has gotten an inroad into the church. And he has created havoc in the churches. We have to beware of that warfare to undermine the church. And Christ promises the people who do not repent of their sin, I will kill them. He will judge them with death. Well, we need to hurry on. One last verse and we'll stop. Verse 13 of Ephesians 6. So you see what we're up against. And verse 13 says, Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. Because of the scale of the warfare described in verse 12, the command to take up the full armor of God is repeated and it is an urgent matter. Take up those two words, technical military term for urgency. We're in war, people. And it's urgent you take up the full armor of God. Do it now. You don't put it off.
so that you'll be able to stand against the formidable powers that are arrayed against you. When you resist the devil, he'll flee from you, James 4, 7 says. We need to be able to resist, and notice verse 13, in the evil day. What is the evil day? This is, I think, a good way to put it. Every day since the fall of man has been evil. But there are times of heightened evil. Times of extraordinary evil. Extraordinary evil schemes against us. Times like that. And we must be prepared, not only for the everyday evils that we encounter, but also for the extraordinary times of evil that we will face. And we have on the whole armor of God. Here's the good news. Notice what it says. Having done everything to stand. A defensive stand. A victorious stand. Though the devil's power is great. His demons are powerful. They are potent. Not omnipotent. All their powers combined cannot even come close to matching the power of our Christ. His supernatural power. Shall I put it like this? He has more power in his glorified little finger (laughs) than all the devils of hell have combined. I'll leave you this. Satan is a servant. He is doing what God permits him to do for God's own purpose and glory. Don't be afraid. Just put on armor. And when you have the armor in place, you can stand. You will stand. Satan can't hurt you if you have on the whole armor. Well, what is the armor? What are the pieces? You want me to tell you? Not today, I won't. (laughs) Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God as power and as truth. Thank you for this delineation of the war that we're engaged in. Unerring, truthful, faithful, reliable that you've given to us. May we take to heart everything that uh, your word says and find ourselves in compliance with that which you command. Prepared, equipped to stand against the enemy of our souls. For the glory of your name, for the joy of our souls, and for the advancement of your cause in the world. We thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign over everything. Your power is complete. There's no reason to fear by any Christian. We just need to do what you say. And victory is ours. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.